Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello and welcome to another episode of Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. Thank you for joining us once again. We've got an absolute cracker coming up today and I'm going to jump straight in because this is an exciting one and it's one that my colleague knows very, very well, perhaps better than any other place on the battlefields. Joining me as always is Pete Smith. Pete, welcome. Hi Matt. Yeah, good to be here again. It certainly does. It stands out for miles. Anyway, over to you for a brief on where we're going to be. We're talking about, of course, the one of the iconic sites. I mean, I say this quite often when we visit Battlefield's iconic sites, but I suppose we should work out some hierarchy of iconic because this one is the one that literally stands out from wherever you are in the Somme Battlefields. It's the magnificent, the sometimes controversial, the hugely emotive Tiepval Memorial to the Missing. Pete, just tell us a little bit about what we're going to be doing in this walk. Well, I think I'll just just respond to a, a comment that you made there, uh, sometimes controversial. And I think uh, probably to us, the people that visit it nowadays, it, it wouldn't appear to be controversial. We just uh, accept it and uh, as I, I we'll describe it as, uh, as we walk around it. But certainly over the, the years it was built, it certainly was controversial to, uh, for a lot of people. It was very cutting edge and, uh, and very different to that that had gone before. Um, so where where is it? Well, where we're going to be is the heart of the Somme battlefield, as uh, as Matt just just said. Um, it's uh, t- the Teepval Memorial because it's on the Teepval Ridge. Uh, notice the pronunciation. It looks like Teepval, um, but it's actually pronounced uh, Teepval uh, here. Um, it's a memorial to the missing, one of many, but perhaps because it is the largest, uh, it both in numbers but also uh, in size, that it is. Uh, I, I would say the number one site that people will go to if they're visiting the Somme. Everybody that visits the Somme will go and have a look at the Teepval Memorial. 
So much so that, Pete, even people who are not specifically visiting the Somme, I mean, there's, there's a number of large motorways that cross through this region. And I know that a lot of people, when they're doing a, a tour to other parts of Europe, will often stop at this memorial. <laughs> just to, This will be their one site they visit on the battlefield so that they can tick the box of having been to the First World War battlefields. Why don't we start... Why don't you just describe this massive, impressive memorial for us all? Because... Most people will know this, and if you don't know it, I'd recommend you go and have a look at a photo because it is quite striking in its design and in its conception and, and the way it sits up high on the ridge. Anyone who's been to the Somme would have seen it from all corners. But for those who haven't seen it, just describe a little bit of what we're talking about here. It's very difficult. I, I'm going to describe my, uh, what my dad, or, or explain what my dad called it. He called it an enormous pile of bricks. And my dad was born in 1920, a direct result of my grandfather coming back from the Great War. And I think it's interesting, isn't it? It is a great big pile of bricks. And, and depending on your viewpoints on the style, that is how you would describe it, because it's an enormous pile of bricks. It's, it's monumental. It is, it is huge. It's an archway to start off with, I suppose. That's what grabs you straight away, is this enormous archway. Even from a distance, you can see there are two colours to it. The lower section looks to be a white colour. And then you can very clearly see, even from a distance, that the majority of it is, is, is brick uh, brickwork. It's actually uh, bricks um, that were came from the UK, so it's been refronted uh, like everything. It weathers, so the bricks are, are bricks from the UK, but originally they were French bricks from Lille. Um, and um, it's only when you actually start walking towards it that you realise that the white panels that you can see all around the pillars, and there are 16 uh, pillars, brick pillars, so that's an enormous number of brick pillars, 16 brick pillars that you realise that these white panels are emblazoned with names. And of course, this is a memorial to the missing, so it commemorates the missing by naming them. So 72,000 uh, names, it's just over 72,000, but 72,000 names of the missing of predominantly the Battle of the Somme are emblazoned upon the walls. So it needs to be big if you've got 72,000 names and you've got to put them on a memorial if you did, just imagine you you place those on a wall just a straight wall it would be enormous so to get around something long and enormous they built these 16 pillars and the names are emblazoned around the pillars apart from the ones on the outside um you there are no names on those purely because you couldn't see them if you were walking around the sides of the memorial it's so high looking up to those the names on there you wouldn't be able to see them so other than that uh, so it's 64 sides with 56 which are inscribed with uh, the names of the missing it's absolutely extraordinary and i've said this many times during this podcast that the the thing that that strikes you about the first world war that you can't get your head around is just the scale the scale of people involved, the scale of loss, and it's memorials like this that that really bring that home. And when you think, I mean, when I stand it, you cannot comprehend it. You can't actually make the mental leap to say that every name I'm looking at is a shattered family back in the UK or other parts of the empire. And just to, to comprehend what that means in terms of emotional loss. And of course, that's why these great memorials are here. They were built for pilgrims to come over and pay their respects to their missing sons and husbands. It is extraordinary, and that's the key. It's a compensation, you'd have to say, for those families who wanted to commemorate their relative and go to the grave and lay flowers on the grave, make that journey to to France, but suddenly realised, because of the, the notification that their relatives are missing, they're not going to have a grave. Well, what does that mean for them? Does that mean that they can never lay flowers, they can never visit something to commemorate them? And so the decision was made very early that... 
these memorials to the missing should be built commemorating uh, all of those that have no known grave. Now, that's you have to be careful with that wording, no known grave. They may have a grave, but it will uh, it basically will be a, the grave of an unknown soldier. So that means that effectively you cannot visit it and say for certain that that is a, a relative. Even though people do, people sometimes pick an unknown soldier and say, we're going to always lay our flowers here and imagine that that's uh, our relative. But the other place to go was one of the, to one of the memorials to the missing and and this being the uh, uh, the largest i'm just going to read the inscription upon it here are recorded names of officers and men of the british armies who fell on the somme battlefields july 1915 to february 1918 but to whom the fortune of war denied the known and honored burial given to their comrades in death i think it's very cleverly worded uh, it, it basically says it says what the memorial is is there for it's a fascinating place, Pete. We're going to do a walk across the site. There's a number of aspects to, to visiting this site. This is very similar to the walk we did through Vimy Ridge, the Canadian memorial, although on a slightly smaller scale here. The, the, the footprint is not quite as big as the, the huge landscaped environments of Vimy Ridge, but we're going to do a walk through the site. And I also should say at this point that um, a year or two ago, I did a documentary, which you can find for free on YouTube, which is called Walking the Battle of the Somme, uh, where I cover a lot of the Somme battlefields, including the Val Memorial. So if you want to see me walking around, talking and describing exactly what we're talking about here, uh, check out YouTube and, and, and that documentary, Walking the Battle of the Somme. But Pete, let's, uh, let's begin our tour because we're going, to, we're going to reveal aspects of this memorial as we walk around, much as visitors do when they get there. It's, it's one of those sites that I always really enjoy because more and more is revealed as, as you explore the site. So where are we going to begin our walk? Well, interestingly, that was not always the case. You would, in the old days, if we'd have been visiting here in the 1930s or the 1950s or 60s or, or 70s, in fact, we would have driven up almost to beside the memorial. So we'd have driven there, got out of the car, and we'd have literally been there. Nowadays, they keep you away from the memorial. I think quite rightly, they keep the, the vehicles away, not not as as, uh, as visitors, but the vehicles away from the memorial. So there's a car park that's uh, is surrounded by little ridges i suppose little little hill hillocks uh, lawns uh, the lawns and they they make sure that the cars and vehicles because there are a lot of people visit here it, it's busy it's always busy in the in the summer in the peak period in fact you can come in the winter and it's still a number of cars here not at the moment <laughs> it's absolutely silent at the moment but uh, normally it's uh, very busy um the car parking then th- you're fed in towards the new visitor centre. So it has a visitor centre. It didn't have uh, for many, many years. In fact, the visitor centre was opened in 2004. It was a little controversial. And so you have to ask yourself, why on earth would a visitor centre be controversial? Uh, Close to memorial, but hidden from it, so it doesn't interfere with the memorial. And it's because there was a feeling from some that... If you were visiting the Teepval Memorial to the missing, then you should know why you're 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 going there, and you didn't need a visitor centre. Now I think that's very slightly narrow-minded, I suppose not very, but slightly narrow-minded to, to to think like that. Perhaps at the time when there were lots of veterans and you you came with a veteran, then you didn't really need any help in understanding what was going on. But nowadays, for the modern visitor. Um, as as we we said, a lot of people spot it from the road and decide that they're going to just go and have a look at what it is. So you do need a visitor centre. It's free. You can walk in there. There are people that can help you. And certainly for those that are trying to find a relative and wonder if that relative is named on the memorial, they will help you uh, discover that. 
Um, there's also some free displays and descriptions of the, the memorial and the building of it and a little film show. There's a very good bookshop, I have to say, and of course the facilities. You can get a, a coffee and use the facilities there as well, the toilet. So, so very nice to have a visitor centre. And having worked on the battlefields for a long time, I, I know where every single toilet and watering hole is on the battlefields and it's, it's nice to have one at such a popular location. Pete, let's do um, let's do one of our little uh, Matt and Pete's famous tangents here, and let's talk about visitor centres and interpretive centres in general because it's an interesting aspect of um, the modern remembrance of the battlefields. Because very few of these, well, none of them, none of these places, none of these visitors and interpretive centres which have sprung up are original to the sites. They're, they're a modern interpretation. They're a modern addition to the battlefields. Some of them, in my opinion, my, just my opinion, work very, very well. And I would put Tietval in that list. It, it, it's a real enhancement of the site. It, it, it talks about how the site was constructed. It talks about why it's there. It shows amazing little videos demonstrating who the men were recorded on the memorial. And it's hidden out of the way. You can't see it from the memorial, so it doesn't impact on the histography of the site. The the Tietval memorial stands there as it always has done. So I think this one is done very well. Other interpretive centres on the battlefields are not done as well. Where do you stand in general of this new on the, in general on this new trend of of interpretive centres next to historic sites? Yeah, well, I think you've hit the nail on the head. This one has been done very well, and in fact, uh, I've got it in a little note here to mention it is that uh, there are also a staff here uh, from the Commonwealth War Graves uh, Commission. So th- there, there are interns here who will help you, as well as the staff actually uh, within the, the visitor centre itself. There are uh, interns who will help and take you up to the memorial itself if you, if you need help. So I think that it all feels very, very professional here uh, and quite slick in some ways. And it needs to be because when it's busy, people need, you need to keep uh, pushing people through. But uh, others, not quite so. And sometimes I think it depends on where they are. If they're very close to the memorial or to the site, then it can impinge slightly on the site. Um I mean, there, there, in recent years, there have been an awful lot uh, have been developed. Perhaps the, the most famous is the one at Villas Bretonneux, the Australian uh, uh, Visitor Centre or Interpretive Centre at, uh, at Villas Bretonneux. Again, very good. But that's equally because it's quite slick and uh, and and helps you, f- you find your way around. And it's also cleverly concealed. And I think that's key. It's cleverly concealed so they don't impinge on the original memorial. And I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, it's a fascinating. Uh, it's a fascinating aspect to modern commemoration. I always ask the question: Do we need it? You know, if you've travelled all the way to the battlefields and you've come there, do you need? Does it need interpreting? You know, I, I think that about ones not to not to cast aspersions on any of them, but the the one at um, Tynecott Cemetery, for example, I never bother to go in because I think if you've got twelve thousand graves in front of you, do you what, what what more do you need to know about the men that are buried there? And so I think some of them don't work as well, but it's fascinating. The one I think at Tiepval has done so well that I have, this This sounds like it's not true, but I swear that it is, that more than once when I've been there, and I don't go there very often, you go all, all the time, Pete, I don't go there very often, but the few times I've led tours to the site, there is always someone when you get back on the bus and you say, oh, wasn't that good? What did you think of the memorial? There's always someone that goes, oh my God, I forgot to look at the memorial. They spend so long in the interpretive centre looking at all the diagrams and the pictures, and it's—I I don't quite know how they do it, but they forget that you can then walk through the interpretive centre and actually see the memorial that is all uh, all described. So I think that's an indication that they do a very good job. That people think the interpretive centre 
is so engaging that in and of itself they've uh, they've fulfilled their obligations on the site. I always lose people in the bookshop, um, but yeah, you're absolutely you're absolutely right. I think also this, this is an enormous great model of the uh, of of the site itself of the memorial itself, and I think a lot of people just going to have a good look at the model and think, oh, well, that's fine. I also think that the weather, if you get a really bad day and people look at the at the path on the far side, very cleverly designed this so the uh, the visitor center you walk down to the visitor center through the visitor center out the other side and onwards to the memorial. And I think some people look out the other side if it's raining and think, perhaps I'll not bother. A bad mistake uh, because it is uh, it is a, a fantastic and and takes your breath away actually as we, as we'll hopefully try and put across to you it's uh, it's extraordinary. The other thing I should also say is within the uh, the visitor centre they actually have a few computers so if you want to check to see if uh, if your relative's name is on the memorial then you can and also they've actually been creating a database of biographical information for as many people uh, as want to submit some information. Information. Um, the people that are commemorated on the memorial, and that's always worthwhile having a look. I remember taking a chat round uh, some time ago, and uh, he knew nothing about his relative other than he was on the memorial. And we went and had a look, and lo and behold, uh, a good half page of biographical information about him, because he'd been commemorated on a, a school a school book, uh, the, the old pupils of a school who'd sadly lost their lives. Uh, a book of uh, a memorial book and he was uh, within that and that had been transcribed and added to his uh, his name and so they were able to learn an awful lot more because they didn't know what school he'd been to so they couldn't uh, they couldn't have tracked it down other than uh, at the at the site so well worth just checking out Pete you lead a lot of people to these sites that's uh, something I'm very interested to find out from you what do these memorials mean to families these days because I'm a firm believer in the fact that these memorials and these cemeteries as much as they knew that they would be there in perpetuity, and they'd be there for future generations. I'm a, I'm a very big believer in the fact that they were built for the pilgrims that were coming over after the war. They were built for veterans, and they were built for families to come over and pay their respects. What does it mean, in your experience of having taken people, so many people, to these memorials? What does it mean a century later, now that all the veterans are gone? What does it mean to those families who never actually knew this veteran, who, who didn't know anyone closely associated with this veteran? What does it mean to those families? Well, I think... To families who have a relative that's on there, it means everything. That's that there's a, a, an unknown soldier commemorated on the walls here. Then it means everything. But I think this is the most surprising thing about this memorial is I get an awful lot of people who have no connection, and perhaps uh, because this is a memorial commemorating the British and the South African, should have added that. The names on here, the 72,000 names, are British and South African, just a small uh, small number of South Africans. So the bulk are British. So if you're an Australian or a New Zealand or a Canadian visiting here, then you know that you have no uh, direct connection if your family has been there for any long time uh, uh, and, and not uh, not directly from Britain. So for those people, you would think that it wouldn't have that that big connection. And yet, I've seen uh, I've seen people weeping who have no connection to this memorial from a family point of view because it is so big and the numbers are so great. And you have to. And I think if you start thinking about seventy two thousand families who have a relative relative uh, commemorated here and have no grave to go to, it is uh, it is. It cannot help but but make you make you think uh, very deeply about 
the aspects of the Great War that we don't think uh, about too often because we visit lots of cemeteries, we go and see graves and we look at a name. But here are people that cannot go to a grave and they can look at a name, but they cannot look at a grave. I'm just going to read something. And, and oddly, I, I, I was on the battlefield today. I was picking up my children from rugby and we always stop off uh, on the route back. And normally, normally it's a cemetery. You need to pack it a crisps and go and have a look at some of the headstones. And this was uh, uh, on an inscription on on the grave of uh, Private S. White of the Northumberland Fusiliers. And he'd been killed in action on the 14th of November in 1916, so right at the end of the Battle of the Somme, 26 years old. And this is what his uh, wife had written as his epitaph. Although so far, thank God I know where you are, from wife, daughter, mother and dad. So that is a family that is aware of how many missing that there are. And I just found that unbelievable. I wrote it down straight away. Although so far, thank God I know where you are. And uh, and I think that tells you something about all of the, the families who did not know where their relatives uh, uh, were. It's just something incomprehensible to us, isn't it, Pete? Just the layers of grief that it wasn't just that you'd lost your son or your husband or your father. But now there's no body, there was nowhere to commemorate them. And of course, as you said at the, at the start of this conversation, that's the reason these memorials are there, so that people had the opportunity to go there. And the, the famous one is the, uh, the description of the Menon Gate that you mentioned, the Ypres walk, that, uh, that, that, that the, the expression was, he's not missing, he's here, that he's recorded on these memorials. And so, you know, and I always say that to, pe- to visitors to the battlefields, we are completing a pilgrimage that lots of families, particularly the ones from Australia and New Zealand and the far-flung corners, didn't get to do so we're completing that pilgrimage for them let's do that now pete let's let's walk through the visitor center and as we said it it's a, it's a bit of a reveal as we come out the far side and, and see the memorial up on the hillside so let's uh let's walk out that door and perhaps as we go out you can tell us a, a little bit about the geography why this site was chosen and, and where we're actually standing on this on this ridge top well, I think it's interesting, the geography of the, of the site. Of course, it's one of the objectives of the 1st of July, that, uh, that terrible day, 60,000 casualties, um, first day of the Battle of the Somme in 1916. And so this sits firmly uh, on the German lines, in fact, very close to the chateau that stood here in the village of Tietval. So this is also a village name, Tietval is the village, and hence the memorial is called the Tietval Memorial. I'm just going to read you a passage from a gentleman called John Mansfield, who was a, a, an ex-soldier. And he uh, was visiting this area um, and uh, in 1917. So this is when the Germans have uh, fallen back to the Hindenburg Line. So this area now is a quiet uh, backwater of the battlefields. And he wrote a book called The Old Front Line, which was his experiences of visiting the battlefields of the 1916 uh, Battle of the Somme. And uh, so I'll just read you this little little passage. It is worthwhile to clamber up to Tietval from our lines. The road runs through the site of the village in a deep cutting, which may have once been lovely. The road is reddish with the smashed bricks of the village. Here and there in the mud are perhaps three courses of brick where a house once stood, or some hideous hole bricked at the bottom for the vault of a cellar. Blasted, dead, pitted stumps of trees with their bark in rags grow here and there in a collection of vast holes, ten feet deep and fifteen feet across, with filthy water in them. There is nothing left of the church. A big reddish mound of bricks that seems mainly powdered around the core of cement still marks where the chateau stood. The chateau garden, the round village pond, the pine trees, which were once a landmark there, 
are all blown out of recognition. The mud of the Somme, which will be remembered by our soldiers long after they have forgotten the shelling, was worse at Teepval than elsewhere. The road through Teepval was a bog. The village was a quagmire. Near the chateau, there were bits where one sank to the knee. I think that's a really uh, good description of uh, of the uh, the landscape as it would have looked in 1917. Horrifically, of course, the battle will come back here in 1918 and it will be blasted yet again. So this wasn't even the end of the destruction. Just an extraordinary area, Pete, and it was really important during the Battle of the Somme, wasn't it? On the, f- on the first day and throughout the Battle of the Somme, this was a vital area to capture because of the high ground. Tell us, tell us about its vital importance in 1916. Well, in 1916, this is crucial that we take this ridge because it is a bulge that uh, sticks out uh, into the front line. Below us is the, is the River Ankh, so we had to cross the river and then uh, uh, climb up the rise. It's very interesting to me, I have to say, because this is the 32nd Divisional Area. It's where they attacked to try and get up here. And my grandfather was here. He was in the 32nd Division. He was with the Trench Mortars. So it means a lot to me. Sadly, it was a total disaster uh, in, in attempting to get this. They didn't get anywhere near it uh um, uh, nowhere near to the, uh, the, the where the chateau was which was one of the objectives and in fact this will not be taken until the 26th of September in 1916 when the tactics have changed and we're going to talk in in future podcasts more and more about the, the battle of the Somme and the change in those uh, tactics but very different on the 26th September they're using tanks creeping barrages it, it's a different battle and this uh, the, the village itself will fall uh, to terrible losses but it will fall on the 26th of September just towards the end of the uh, the battle of the Somme so never forget that when you stand at the memorial and look down the slopes, that just the sheer number of men that were killed on this ground in front of you. It's like everywhere on the Battle of the Somme. You you know, when you go to Pozier and see where the Australians fought or you, you go to the New Zealand Memorial or you go to any of these famous sites to the, to the British from the first day and just the scale of the carnage in these now quite beautiful farm fields just in front of you. Well, it's extraordinary when you stand underneath the arch, uh, this enormous arch, and look towards the British front lines. Uh, yeah, you you realise how steep it is. Uh, you also now uh, get a little fragment of trenches. There's a fragment of trenches at the back of the memorial beyond the cemetery. We'll be discussing the little cemetery that's here in a little while. Um, it was once covered in bushes and you couldn't see anything. They've cleared the bushes. And so we now even have a little fragment of the battlefield left within the the parklands uh, around the memorial, which has enhanced it uh, enormously. And also clearing the, the bushes and trees at the back has given us back the view. This was done a few years ago now, but it, uh, it certainly has made a difference. Talking about views, what I should mention is if we'd have been visiting in the 1930s, then you could actually walk to the top of this memorial. There were actually stairs within it, so you can no longer go. But uh, the early visitors could walk to the top and gaze across the battlefields from the top, which must have been extraordinary. I have to say, I've, I've not been, and some of my colleagues have, they've had the lucky opportunity of going to the top, but I've not been. But I wouldn't like it. I wouldn't like people to go up there now. I think it would look terrible with crowds of people up at the top all hanging over the edge and shouting as as some people will. So I like the the fact that we can't go there, but I actually would would quite like to, to pop up there and go and have a look at the view myself. Well, let's talk about the memorial, Pete. Let's walk along the path from the visitor centre and then you come around a little bend and there is the memorial in front of you. Just just, just tell us about that experience of, of seeing the memorial for the first time. 
Well, I think as you walk onto the site, and the site has changed slightly. There used to be a low curving wall that's no longer there. And I, and I actually don't miss it because it's an open lawned area. You're still quite some way from it. And you walk into the middle of the lawned area, kind of turn a right, and you are looking directly at the archway, this enormous archway. And even from this distance, you cannot tell that there are names emblazoned on it. Those panels just appear to be white uh, stone uh, stone uh, facings around the bottom of each pillar. And it's not until you actually walk towards it that uh, you realise that uh, these are the names. They slowly come into focus and you realise that the names of the missing are emblazoned on these panels. In the centre, we have the Stone of Remembrance, this big, it looks almost like uh, a tomb, but it's in fact designed as it's supposed to represent an altar. And that altar, this uh, this uh, Stone of Remembrance, sits right in, in the middle of the archway. I have to say, one of the aspects that you'll notice straight away, almost in any conditions, is this is a wind funnel. And the wind whistles through here, and in the winter it can be absolutely freezing. Uh, but it's uh, it's worthwhile to get cold and, uh, and, and wet uh, for the view when you get there. And so looking directly in front of us, and the archway, I should say, is orientated east and west. So it's uh, the east behind us as we're approaching, and the, the west in front of us. Behind us, if we were to turn around and look behind us, then we are looking all the way to Mukau Farm, uh, a battlefield for the Australians uh, and others uh, fighting in 1916 during the Battle of the Somme, especially the August of 1916. So the battlefield is all around us. In front, we're looking across to the British lines and to the Valley of the Ankh. Uh, extraordinary views and that's a great reason to go if nothing else I mean the memorial is superb it's interesting controversial as we'll discuss in a little while but uh, yeah it's it is monumental you have to say it is it is monumental so you walk across that lawned area it's always amazing it, it just looms over you this memorial and it seems to get bigger as you get closer to it bigger and bigger and then you walk up the steps then you're you're standing under this arch surrounded by the names next to the stone of remembrance there's always wreaths on the stone of remembrance from groups that have visited to pay their respects but also talk to me about the stone wreaths Pete that are that are uh, that are positioned around the uh, the interior columns yeah the the uh, the facing of each column so each of those uh... Uh, those faces that we get a, a wreath and the the wreaths are commemorating various aspects of the Battle of the Somme because even though we call it the Battle of the Somme it was broken down into various so my village uh, was part of the uh, called the fighting of Flair's Corselet. Um, oddly Poissiers is known as Poissiers Wood it's the only place I've ever seen it called Poissiers Wood but Poissiers Wood is on there uh, we even have other battles that are just outside the Battle of the Somme, uh, Bapome, uh, the taking of Bapome, which is in 1917. But this memorial covers that period. Uh, but the majority of the missing are actually from the, as I said, 90% are from the actual true fighting of the Somme from the 1st of July to the 18th of November in 1916. So those uh, those battle honours are within each uh, each stone wreath. The height of the memorial in its uh, from where we are standing is uh, 43 metres high, 140 feet. So it gives you an idea of how, how high it is. And to create such an enormous memorial, the, uh, the footings, the foundations are 5.8 metres uh, thick, deep, uh, 19, uh, 19 feet. So enormous uh, amount of, of uh, concrete poured to uh, support the weight of this, uh, this memorial. Of course, one of the issues with building memorials like this is that this landscape was damaged. It's chalk. We are on top of a chalk ridge, so this is chalk. 
It had so been pounded by the artillery in, in uh, 1916 and again in uh, 1918 that uh, it meant the foundations have to be larger than you would normally expect on this kind of landscape to cope with the the pounding and the breaking up of the chalk beneath and also to ensure that there are no caves or dugouts or underground positions beneath the memorial and that uh, that had to be checked as well and I know a story of a, a chap that bought a, a piece of building land around here and he came to build his house and it, uh, it it increased the cost of his house enormously because when they started digging the foundations they fell into an enormous German dugout and that had to be filled with concrete it was the only thing they could do before they could actually start building the house so it is one thing that we're all aware of here that there are Beneath us, there's a high percentage that will have underground positions if you're in a if you're living in a battlefield village. Just extraordinary, I think. From our well, at least from my far remove here in Australia, we can't quite comprehend the uh, just the extent that the war still touches everyone that lives there. Um, tell me about the architect, Pete. So Edward Lutyens, a name that pops up quite frequently in the cemeteries and memorials around the the Western Front. Probably one of the most, if not the most, famous of the uh, of the designers of memorials and cemeteries. Tell us about Lutyens and his work here. Lutyens is the lead architect um, of uh, of the memorials, and you tend to find that his cemeteries. And I've got a, a very glossy tabletop uh, um, uh, book, uh, coffee book that uh, has beautiful colour photographs of all of his cemeteries. And he certainly created an, an awful lot. They are a little starker than some. They they feel less romantic. Uh, and I think that's that's overall his feel, and and that would be the big difference, I suppose, between the Menning Gate, that famous uh, memorial to the missing in Belgium that you can actually drive through. Uh, this one is an arch; it could have been used on a road, and interestingly, it was designed originally to sit upon a road, um, where the road would go uh, underneath it. When Lutyens first started sketching out his ideas in, in, in I think it's nineteen twenty two, twenty three, he started looking at this memorial. Um, but at that time, it was going to be at St. Quentin and it was a, a road would go underneath it. That was uh, cancelled. You have to say that there was a slight issue with the French. And I can understand this really uh, living here is the the number of memorials that were going to be built to the missing and just other memorials being built. The French started thinking, hang on a minute, this is getting out of hand slightly. And so there was a slight drawback on the number of memorials that were going to be uh, permissible. And this uh, then meant that the Lutyens design that was going to be used elsewhere was brought, and I think I think very successfully, and altered uh, slightly no road un- running underneath it, thank God, because that, that makes it uh, so, so marvellously stunning upon this ridge here that it was moved here. So it's, uh, it, I think it's, it's interesting to imagine the difference between the memorial at the Menning Gate, and and that has a has a feel of uh, it's it's got lions on it, it's got pillars, it's 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 beautified. This in no way really. Uh, well, back to my father's description, it's a, a large pile of bricks. Um, it is modern in a way. It's Art Deco. It has an Art Deco feel about it. I like it, but it certainly isn't beautifying. It's 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 not um, it's not as we would expect Roman columns that you'll see in some of the cemeteries very much have Roman columns. They feel uh, very classical. This is not classical. It was something new. And some people didn't like it. They really thought it was too stark and really too much of a reminder of, of, of the death with all the names all over it. And perhaps it was going too far the other direction. Uh, I I actually think it's it's right, and I think nowadays people would accept that it is doing a, a very good job. It's not uh, memorialising to a, a massive extent the warfare. It is commemorating the missing, and that's what it's doing. It's carrying the names of the missing. 
but by God, it does it well. I've always thought, Pete, as well, the use of red brick as the building material. We, we don't think of red brick as a beautiful, um, you know, a beautiful uh, material to build any sort of building out. Red brick is utilitarian. It's industrial. It's quite ugly when it's employed. And, you know, the, the, the comment in both the UK and Australia, if you say something's made out of red brick, implies it's not going to be particularly nice to look at. So I think that was also an interesting choice to perhaps it represented the working class origins of so many of the men, you know, the Powells from Accrington and and Bristol and and and, and all over the place in the working areas of, of England. But it, uh, I think that was an interesting choice as well, which which wouldn't have gone over so well with uh, with people compared to, as you say, something like the Men and Gate, which is absolutely stunning and beautiful in the, in its stonework. I agree entirely. And, and interestingly, uh, back in the UK after the, the war, um, Lutyens will continue using brick and he built uh, for the nouveau rich, for the, the new wealthy uh, of uh, the post-war years. Uh, he builds country uh, houses for them and uh, he predominantly uses his brick for those and he uses it very well. These houses are worth millions and millions now that, that he designed. He also used a, a gardener called Gertrude Jekyll who... Uh, uh, who they worked together designing the gardens, and she also was involved in the designing of the uh, the gardens within the cemeteries. So this is the start of the them their pairing together, and uh, uh, and it, I think it works it works exceedingly well. There's also the cemetery behind the memorial, which we should mention as well at this point to uh, to give some perspective to what we're looking at. It's a, it's a, an interesting cemetery because you can see instantly when you look at it, it has both Commonwealth War Graves headstones, but also the French crosses of the uh, the French. Um, dead soldiers. So just tell us about this quite unusual Anglo-French cemetery at the back of the memorial. Well, well, this was part of... Uh, a deal is not a very good word, but it was part of um, us negotiating with the French on having this memorial built. Uh, the French wanted this memorial to be an Anglo-French memorial, and, that, and that's what it's called. It is an Anglo-French memorial, but you would have to say this is really about the British fighting up here on, on these ridges. But I think because it is so vast and it is so visible from so many different lo- locations in the area that it was felt that it needed to also to commemorate the French. And, and rightly, the French, very often we forget, the French are very much involved in the Battle of the Somme. So they are also commemorated here and, and more so in this, this cemetery, because this is known as the Tietval Anglo-French Cemetery. And we effectively have 300 Frenchmen and 300 uh, British. They're not all British. I'm using British in its broadest sense. Uh, there are Australians and uh, and, and Canadians here. But, um, I'm saying that, and I actually don't know if there are any Canadians. I certainly know there are Australians here, but it is a, it is a Commonwealth War Grave Cemetery, so it will have uh, everybody here. The bulk of both sides, uh, sadly, are unknown, and I think that, that feels right in, in some ways as well, that uh, most of the people buried here are, are unknown. The British burials here... They all come from uh, December uh, 1931 to March of 1932. So they are later recoveries. These are people, and it gives you an indication, again, 300 people buried here in a few months uh, from that have been recovered off the, off the battlefield. And because of that reason, because they're being recovered in the 1930s, then the majority are not going to be able to be uh, identified. There are some exceptions, and I think I should just mention one of them that's there because I think it's just a fascinating story. There's a, a Sergeant Major William James, um, James Nelson. Um, he was born in Australia, and uh, 
Um, he thought he fought with the 23rd Battalion of Northumberland Fusiliers. So he, he obviously was in England uh, or working in, in England at the start of the war. And so he joined a British battalion and he fought with a British battalion and sadly lost his, his life on the 1st of July, uh, that, that terrible day in 1916. And again, was recovered in the 1930s and he's, he's, he's buried here. But what, what's really sad is visible from here, we can see, I've already uh, mentioned it, Mukau Farm, Mukai Farm where the Australians fought. And on the 10th of August there, his brother was sadly killed fighting with the 16th Battalion of the AIF, the Australian Imperial Force. And uh, and so he's unknown. Um, and uh, and uh, Sergeant Major uh, William Nelson is actually buried uh, here. So he has a grave, but his, his brother is unknown. And so he's on another of the great memorials to the missing, that memorial at Villas Bretonneux commemorating the Australian missing. So I think it's a, a great a great link to Australia and Britain uh, here. It certainly is. It's a shame that we can't actually walk uh, on the battlefield of Mukai Farm because that would be an extraordinary one, uh, you know, for Australians. Just a, 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 it's not an iconic battle because most people have never heard of it. But just the, anyone who's read anything about the fighting at Mukai Farm after Pozier, so the hell of Pozier, and then the slog across Mukai Farm is just horrific. It's just inching through the mud from shell hole to shell hole and just murderous casualties. So it's a pity we can't actually walk across the battlefield because it's, it's, a, it's a private farm, um, but we will certainly include it when we do... A, we'll do several podcasts on Posier as we, as we go forward and we'll, we'll certainly include, when we do the back half of the battle, we'll include Mukai Farm because it's just an extraordinary, uh, extraordinary story. This is one of the best places to view it from. Uh, from these ridges here, we can look behind us because we're normally looking towards the British lands. But if we turn and look behind us, then we get a superb view to Mukau Farm. And quite often I do a, a brief on the Battle of, of Mukau Farm from this location. So, uh, yeah, so it's uh, it's uh, the, part of that, that ability to view all around the battlefield from one location. I'm just going to describe, uh, talking again about the Anglo-French uh, connection. Not We don't get this very often, but on the... Um, on the Stone of Remembrance, uh, no, sorry, it's not on the Stone of Remembrance, it's on the Cross of Sacrifice. Below the Cross of Sacrifice, we have a, a little inscription uh, that the world may remember the common sacrifice of two and a half million dead. Here have been laid side by side soldiers of France and of the British Empire in eternal comradeship. And that's engraved on the beneath the Cross of Sacrifice. Uh, very rare to see that. And I think, again, the wording very carefully considered and, and it works. It's really a lovely sight. I mean, it's it's one of the, the, the most emotive things to do on the battlefield is to go through that interpretive centre, learn a little bit, then walk up that path to this incredible looming memorial, read the names of the memorial, then down the steps on the far side into this shared cemetery, just showing the shared sacrifice of, of the French and the British. And the thing that I always remember when I'm here, Pete, is how many veterans must have come over the years. Do, do we have an indication of what veterans thought of this memorial in the, in the post-war years? We do. It, it, it's interesting because, uh, same as today, I suppose, that a lot of people found it a little stark. Uh, I suppose a lot of people, like my father, looked upon it as as too stark and and not enough kind of glory of of warfare here. It was just a very stark reminder of the number of people who were the missing and and the dead. 
But equally, because it is so monumental, then and so so large and and just so grand in a way that others felt that that it was fitting, that it was a fitting memorial if it was going to carry the names of uh, of so many unknown soldiers, so many dead, then this was something that they could really come to and feel that they could uh, could hold a service here. No cars going past, no shops close by. Of course, I'm referencing uh, the Menin Gate there, and this to some felt the right thing to do it didn't need to be on the edge of a city it needed to be on the battlefield commemorating uh, what what went on here as well as because of course this is where we come to commemorate the battle of the somme it is uh, there's a service here on the 1st of july it's one of two services that well actually there's several services but this is the main service that takes place on the 1st of july and and for the british the 1st of july is the nearest that we get to anzac day that uh, for australia um, because of the the numbers of of, uh, of terrible terrible dead on that first day, so first of July there's a service here, and of course the 11th of November um, we we have a service here as well to commemorate the armistice. Um, so it is a place that still draws people in for services. It still draws people to come and have have a look at it, and I think it always always has done. Peter, I think it's interesting. You just reminded me when you're talking about the the, the stark nature of it, the remembrance of of the dead. Uh, it also has something which I think is quite extraordinary. It, it has inscribed on the front of the memorial, the missing of the Somme it is inscribed on the front of the memorial. And that's highly unusual. The, 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 the memorials, the inscription, as you, as you said, on the inside, talking about what it's there for and, you know, to the, to the, you know, the, 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 the fortune of war denying the honoured burial. And, you know, it's a similar thing at the Menon Gate and it's similar in all the memorials, but just the stark, big capital lettering on the outside that just says the missing of the Somme. You, you're absolutely right that it is there to remember loss and to remember sacrifice. There's no glory in this. When we talked about the Menon Gate, we talked about how it was half a triumphal victory arch and, 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 and half a cenotaph. But this one is not like that at all. This is purely there to just say, look how many men paid the, ult- you know, paid the ultimate price uh, to win this war. I think you're right. And I think... Part of where it, where it is, we can duck into a coffee shop. We can stand uh, under the awnings of the of the shops when we're visiting uh, the Menin Gate. Um, here, you have to walk across that lawned area, and if the weather is really bad, then you you're going to get soaked before you get there if you haven't got a brolly. But I think that's part of it. I think that's part of where it stands. It stands on the centre of the battlefield. It's surrounded by that, that part of that blasted landscape. I should also add that the, there is a wood around it. It's been planted, uh, not not matching exactly what was there before. Um, it is just a wood that's been to enhance the memorial to a certain extent. But within those branches, you can see the shell-pitted landscape and the trenches. They're still there. So... It is uh, it is a reminder. It's a reminder of what went on literally around you. And you don't get that feel when you go to the Menin Gate. You are in a town. You are surrounded by the warmth uh, of a, and the ability to get a coffee. Uh, the buglers play the, the last post. And it feels a lot more... Now, I'm not going to use it in a, in a derogatory, but it feels a little contrived. Whereas here, you don't get that feeling at all. You, you understand why this is here straight away. This is about those names. This is about commemorating the people that are on, the, on, on this uh, memorial. It certainly is a stark reminder of the loss. And I think that's how, particularly the first day of the Somme, that's how people did want to remember it and how people still do want to remember it, is that even though the Somme, eventually we, we ground out a sort of a victory during the four months of the Battle of the Somme, that first day was the, the most ghastly day, the most costly day in the history of the British Army. And I think people have long since felt it was right to just remember the losses uh, on that uh, on that disastrous day. 
I'm just going to add one one final thing because I think it's just interesting. The numbers keep changing of how many people are on here. Now, at one point in its history, the numbers would reduce because obviously when this was eventually uh, built and they put all the names on there, they are still recovering an awful lot of people, many more that are identifiable in the 1930s and uh, um, not during the Second World War, of course, in the 1950s. At one time, they chiselled the names off when they were found. Because, of course, if you're found, you should not be on a memorial to the missing. And this was the only one of all the memorials to the missing where they made the effort to take the names off. The problem being is if you take a name off, you have to chisel it out. You then put a patch in, a fillet of stone, and you can actually see them. You can see where there are people's names that have been taken off. So eventually it was stopped. Now, I don't know exactly what year it was stopped, but eventually it was stopped. They stopped uh, um, taking the names off. And in recent years, they've been putting people on. Now, you can't put them on because this is recorded regimentally. They are uh, on these panels regimentally. You can uh, use a, a series of books that will tell you uh, exactly where your, uh, your relative will be on which panel. Um, but they've been adding people because what has been discovered, and you have to be thankful for a, a little grouping of people, and it was uh, they got together and formed a society, if that's the correct term, and it was called the In From The Cold Project. And what they started doing is identifying people that have been missed off the memorials to the missing. In other words, they are missing from the missing, so they're not commemorated anywhere. And as of this month... 6,235 names have been added to various memorials uh, and in some cases to, to headstones uh, where they were missing. They were not identified. So it's an ongoing exercise. It's been running for 10 years, but it's extraordinary, isn't it? So 6,235 people have been added to memorials or to headstones. Uh, the largest proportion of that is for the Somme, the fighting on the Somme. So they had to create here addendums, basically. And so off the back of the memorial, as we were walking, as we walked down to the cemetery, we went past the addendums which lists all of those people that have now been discovered are missing on the Somme battlefield but were not commemorated. How extraordinary that what basically amounts to a bookkeeping effort, you know, a paperwork effort, is is uncovering that number of names. It just, again, the scale of the loss during this war, just just beyond comprehension. But what a wonderful project, and let's let's hope it long continues. Pete, what other sites should we look at on this on on the on, on the uh, on the site before we uh, before we head away? Well, there, there, I forgot to mention, Visitor Centre now actually has a, a, a little uh, museum as well. You have to pay. I think it's, uh, I'm not sure what it's going to be, but let's say it's six euros, but I, I'm not sure. Um, and uh, very good, a very good uh, display of artefacts that have been uh, found uh, in the fields uh, around here. I have to say there's a glass uh, floor and you're walking above lots of artefacts. Those artefacts used to be my barn, and I decided in all my years of field walking, I needed to, to get rid of them and put them somewhere, um, and so I donated them to uh, the the new museum there. So you'll see a lot of things that um, my son and myself uh, found in in years and years, ten, over ten years of walking the battlefields here, and and just picking bits up. We felt it needed to go somewhere rather than just in in our barn. Um, so that's definitely worthwhile uh, popping in to go and ha have a look at the little uh, the little museum. There's also a memorial to the 18th Division uh, on the site, which I think gets a little bit overlooked with the grandeur of the Tietval Memorial. 
we we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the 18th division and their memorial here. So uh, let's let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, thank you, Matt. I've forgotten what your question was there, so that's why I kind of ran out of steam. So, 18th, so you were you were going to um you were going to overlook the uh, the memorial that I most was. visitors overlook as well, Pete. <laughs> I was. It's uh, oddly it's uh, on a route that. Um, you can't really stop there easily and you don't exit by that. It used to be right by the exits, but it's to the 18th division. Um, the 18th division had a very high opinion of itself. With, with due, uh, it's a British division, with due reason, it was a very successful uh, division. They actually have three memorials on the Western Front. This is one of them. Another one at Clapham Junction, which is on the Menin, uh, Menin Road, and Trones Wood, which is also on the Somme uh, battlefield, but it's the fighting of 19. 19- 18, whereas this is the fighting of 1916 here. So it's a, it's a nice memorial, I have to say, well built. But I just find it extraordinary that the 18th Division, three memorials, and you have to say the bulk of the British uh, divisions do not have memorials. Um, there are over 60 divisions uh, fighting on the Western Front, and uh, yeah, the bulk of them don't have any memorials. So the 18th Division, yeah, three memorials. Uh, but well worth wandering down and, and having a quick look at. And it's on the site of where they successfully, they were the division that successfully took Tietbal on that 26th of September in 1916. So well worth uh, having a look and commemorating uh, the men, especially of the 12th Middlesex. 12th Battalion, Middlesex Regiment, they were the guys that actually retook the, uh, the town, the, the village. Well, it's just an extraordinary sight, Pete, and it's 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 silly of us to say definitely check it out when you're on the battlefields because if you go to the Somme, it is the number one site to see on the on the on the battlefields, and along with the Menin Gate, the the most important commemorative site for British and Commonwealth troops uh, in in on the Western Front. So, just an absolutely essential site. But I hope that this walk, this virtual walk, has given you a bit of a new perspective on it because. People, it's one of those things that it's just so commanding, it's just so grand that that there's there's nothing extra needs to be said about it except it's here, read the names, remember what went on. So I hope we've given you a few little extra facets of information about it because it's an extraordinary site with an extraordinary history. And and Pete, it's always a delight to walk these sites with you. So thank you again for your for your knowledge and your expertise in uh, on on, uh, on this site. It's a pleasure, Matt. I look forward to actually taking people back back to it. It uh, feels uh, very odd with uh, no, nobody there, but uh, yeah, there are advantages uh, to be the only person there. But uh, yeah, I'd rather be taking uh, uh, groups around and having a look at it and explaining what it's there for. On that subject, we're recording this in uh, towards the end of February, and the, so there's a question marks about when travel will be allowed, etc., and when we'll be through this ghastly COVID disaster. Uh, but we're seeing light at the end of the tunnel now that vaccines are rolling out, now that uh, people, you know, less people are getting ill, less people are dying. And we would be hopeful that uh, that that we will be taking tours again, maybe as early as this year. Definitely from the British perspective, I think in Europe, they're expecting that British people and Europeans will be able to travel again, hopefully as soon as the summer, the European right. summer. Uh, so, Pete, hopefully you'll be uh, walking the battlefields again. I think for Australians, it will be late this year, late 2021, if we're fortunate. But we are hopeful at Matt McLaughlin Battlefield Tours of taking our Australian clients back to the battlefields in in time for Anzac Day next year. Hopefully, maybe even at the end of 2021, but definitely in time for Anzac Day next year. So we're very excited about that. So um, if you're someone that wants to come with us, certainly jump on our website, battlefields.com.au. We have all the information up there about the tours that you can take. And many of them are led by my colleague here, Pete Smith, who, as you can see, does a wonderful job. So um, we're hopeful that that in the near future we'll be, we will be walking the battlefields again uh, for real, not just in this virtual format. But until that day, that wonderful day comes up when we can all return to the battlefields, I hope you're enjoying walking with us uh, in this virtual sense across the battlefields. And Pete, as always, thank you for your wonderful contribution to Battle Walks. Pleasure, Matt. 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.